0: You're listening to the Giving Thought Podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and the work of civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis, uh, and this is episode 44. Um, and in this episode, uh, to mark International Women's Day, which I believe is coming up on the eighth of March, uh, I thought I'd take the opportunity to look at the the theme of women uh, and philanthropy. Um, I should probably, you know, make my apologies up front that, uh, as many of you will probably have gleaned, I am not myself a woman, uh, and the last thing that I want to be accused of in doing this is sort of chronic mansplaining. So I'm going to do my best to avoid that. But if anybody feels that I've lapsed into it at any point you can berate me after the event. Um, So what I want to do first um, as I quite often do on this podcast uh, anyone who's listened to it before will know is take a bit of a a look back at the role that women have played um, as philanthropists throughout history Um, both as kind of some examples of individual female philanthropists but also more broadly the the way in which philanthropy has kind of shaped women's role in society, which I think is really interesting. So taking that first one first, you know, I'm not going to be able to cover all of the uh, the famous female philanthropists of the past. So if I leave out one of your favourites here, I'll, I'll apologise up front. But I thought I'd just take a handful that, um, you know, that I think kind of illustrate some interesting things about the role that women have played in philanthropy um, so kind of big female philanthropists of the past. You know, one one of the challenges, obviously, of finding uh, women who were philanthropists in the past were that for a very long time, women weren't generally allowed to make their own money. Um, it was sort of frowned on. They weren't allowed to, to be in business. So if they did have money, it was either because they had inherited it um, from their parents um, or more likely because um, they'd inherited it by marriage. Um, and the first sort of handful I want to... Uh, talk about came came about in that way so you know a good example of this uh for instance is angela Badette coots someone that i have talked about uh before on the podcast um for which i make no apologies she's got a very sort of interesting story um but as uh as a philanthropist she came into money by marrying uh into a banking family i mean she was reasonably wealthy uh in her own right uh anyway because she came from the higher echelons of society um and you know in a way what she exemplifies is something that we will talk about later on which is is the kind of the sense in which there was very much deemed to be um in Victorian times a feminine approach to philanthropy one that was uh, partly about the way in which you approached philanthropy and um, so it was it seemed to be sort of more sympathetic and emotive um, or emotional uh, and also about the sorts of causes that were addressed. So largely they were ones that kind of related to women's role in domestic life because that was sort of seen as appropriate. Um, and Coots was interesting in that she uh, she sort of fitted that mould um, to start with. A lot of her philanthropy was, you know, reasonably traditional, sort of by the numbers philanthropy, largely religious as well, it has to be said. Um, and as as I've highlighted before um, when talking about her, one of the, the key turning points was um, her relationship with... Charles Dickens who um, uh, she kind of came across and struck up a relationship with uh, and over time sort of sought his help and advice in trying to shape her philanthropy more to address the kind of the real problems of poverty in London at that time. Um, I mean in some ways it's unfortunate that Dickens himself was a man because it sort of seems to suggest that he came in and, and solved for Badekut's, uh a problem that she had with with her own approach to to philanthropy but it's sort of you know it's it's interesting in that where she ended up was kind of slightly subverting this sense that the the uh, the approach that women took to to philanthropy had a, had a particular kind of hue to it um another example um, that's interesting is Octavia Hill so um she again I've I've mentioned her briefly on the podcast before but she um was a housing reformer um, and also very involved in the founding of the National Trust uh, here in the UK. Um, and she is uh, interesting for a couple of reasons. I mean, one uh, we'll come on to to talk about later is that she, um, she was very sort of influential in empowering women um, through the National Trust. So women played a huge role in the sort of early story of the Trust. Um, but actually when it came to the sort of wider emancipation of women and particularly around universal suffrage she was on the other side of the argument and and she wasn't alone in that as we'll as we'll see a bit later on Um, but she also took quite an innovative approach to philanthropy so um, in her housing work um, while she did straightforward sort of uh, traditional giving she also was quite heavily involved in pioneering a method an early method of sort of social investment or impact investing I guess you could call it where uh, she and other philanthropists would provide uh, money to um, to build uh, homes for, for workers and sort of those in the working classes and they would then charge rent on them. So, so it wasn't a straightforward philanthropic gift, but the rent was at a below market rate so that it was affordable and the difference between the market rate uh, and the rate that was charged was seen as philanthropic and this was often called um, percentage philanthropy or sort of 4% philanthropy. And she practiced it, and other people like Edward Guinness and George Peabody uh, did similarly. Uh, and then the other one that I wanted to talk about, who kind of came into money, is uh, a US donor, a very famous one called Olivia Russell Sage. So she was married to a man called Russell Sage, who was one of the sort of big um Wall Street investors of the, the 19th century and made millions and millions of dollars. Um, and interestingly. Uh, Olivia Russell Sage uh, came into uh, her own uh, as a philanthropist after his death but up until that point their philanthropic giving had been quite limited because uh, by uh, all accounts Russell Sage himself was remarkably stingy and didn't really want to give very much money away Um, and then once he died and and left her all of his money which was I think about 75 million dollars or something like that she um, sort of got on with the business of giving it away pretty darn quickly and, and over the remaining 13 years i believe that she lived after his death she gave away about 45 million of that 75 million dollars um so it's kind of interesting example there of the way in which you know uh female philanthropists might have been held back in some cases by their their husband's sort of attitude to an approach to giving um and then the, the second group of, of female philanthropists I want to think about uh, quickly in history are you know perhaps the more unusual ones which is those who have made uh, their own money um and you know there there were few outlets really for women to do that for for large parts of history and um, sometimes it was uh through sort of creative or performing um professions because that was seen as appropriate so uh, one example there, for instance, is Beatrix Potter, the children's author, who obviously wrote the Peter Rabbit Tales, which were enormously successful during her life. So uh, she sold many of those and made quite a lot of money. Uh, and she was a, a big philanthropist, very, uh, very involved in kind of conservation efforts up in the Lake District where she lived. Uh, she was involved in the early days of the National Trust. Um once again, sort of you know not necessarily on the the right side of history when it came to the wider issues of um, women 's uh, enfranchisement and, and right to vote, um, but kind of very you know very interesting um, in that she had her own money um, and the kind of the approach that she took to to giving it away um, was quite unusual um, Another example actually that um, i wasn 't really aware of until I was doing research for this program is Jenny Lind. Um, so you may recognize the name if uh, like me you have young children and have therefore been subjected to watching uh, the Greatest Showman which is the the musical based on the life of P.T. Barnum uh, starring Hugh Jackman um and Jenny Lind is is a big character in that film because Barnum she was a Swedish opera singer and Barnum brought her over to the to the US and sort of um took her on a on a tour of the country um but she gave away quite a large proportion of the the money that she made through performance fees um so certainly in the the um the first few concerts that she did in new york which i think were in carnegie hall um which are uh, dramatized in in that film um she gave away all of the money from from those two performances to the widows and orphans of firefighters in the city and she did sort of similar things as she toured around the country and there's probably a note of caution in there in that whilst, whilst it seems true that Lind was highly philanthropic and you know really did some sort of amazing things in terms of giving to charity, this was also part of the mythos that P.T. Barnum created around her, sort of, you know, this uh, this angel of purity and charity. So, you know, we might need to take the narrative slightly with a pinch of salt given uh, Barnum's track record around those sorts of things. Um and then the the other one that I want to talk about that um is you know really fascinating and and I want to to go away and, and find out more about her life actually having kind of found out a bit is uh, Madam C J Walker, so she's fascinating for for a number of reasons but um so she was uh, a laundress she was born Sarah Breedlove I believe um at the sort of end of the nineteenth uh, century down in the the deep south in the U S uh, and she was a black woman and um she eventually kind of uh, built up her own business empire selling uh, hair and beauty products to to black people you know who hadn't been catered to up to that time and she amazingly despite the fact that she was a black woman in the south during the sort of height of the jim crow era um became reputedly the first self-made female millionaire in the US um and the whole time that she was doing this philanthropy was a huge part of what she was doing um you know and she, she was interesting i think because she's one of those people who didn't really particularly separate the way in which she made money from the way in which she gave it away so she certainly did give away money uh often to sort of black educational co- uh, causes uh tuskegee college um things like the naacp and their early work at the start of the 20th century um trying to campaign against lynching um, but also, she saw her business as a way of empower, empowering um, black people, particularly black women. Um, and she sort of offered franchises out selling beauty products and, and hair products um, at a time when it would have been virtually impossible for women from those communities to find work um, in any other way that wasn't sort of uh, servile work. So, you know, really fascinating. And, uh, you know, I would encourage you know, anybody to kind of go away and, and look more into her life because I certainly want to. Um, but then more more broadly I think the question when you look at the philanthropy and the role of women in history is kind of why philanthropy was actually a really important factor in the eventual emancipation of women. We'll we'll talk in the second section about the sort of direct application of philanthropic resources to women's causes like um uh, suffrage um, and women's rights latterly. But what I mean here is more about the way in which engagement in philanthropy kind of changed the perception of the status of women in society, um, both their own perception of themselves, but also kind of, you know, men's perception of their potential uh, and what they could do. Um, and philanthropy here was was crucial, really, because there you know one one way of thinking about it is there were sort of two spheres of life there was the domestic sphere which was seen as you know the appropriate realm of women so that was all about the home and women you know were allowed to have a certain amount of power there and then there was the public sphere which was you know the sphere of politics and and debate and business and that was very much the realm of men Um, and actually it was very difficult for, for women to enter that realm Um, And philanthropy, uh, certainly during the Victorian era, became a way of kind of bridging between those two worlds because it was kind of the extension of the domestic sphere into the the public realm. Um, So as long as women kind of stuck to issues that were seen as appropriate to them because of that domestic role, so things to do with family and and childcare and those sorts of things, and pursued philanthropy uh, that was aimed at those... It started to be appropriate for them to operate more broadly in the public sphere. Um, I just want to read a quote here from uh, a book by uh, Frank Prochaska, who's done a lot of work about the sort of role of philanthropy uh, and women in the in the Victorian era. And this is from a a sort of short book he wrote called The Voluntary Impulse, Um, just outlining um, the way, you know, basically what I've been saying there, and particularly the role that sort of Christian evangelicalism played. Um, in in allowing women to move into that public sphere. So he says, Evangelicalism had the important side effect of opening up greater opportunities for women in charitable service. Thought to be predisposed to religion and benevolence and given an education centred on home and family, women were well placed to take advantage of the possibilities in any extension of familial values to the community beyond the home. At home, they had a recognised status and were able to carry out their domestic charities relatively free from formal constraints. From their domestic citadel, they made ever-wider forays into society as the front-line dis- defenders of family life. What may be described as an explosion of societies run by women took place in the 19th century. Institutional expressions of a vital female culture with, fin- with financial resources – these charities not only brought issues such as child welfare and moral reform to the fore, but were to have a profound effect upon women's lives and expectations. Um and this, you know, that, that quote I think is really interesting because it very clearly encapsulates what I'm trying to say there. Um, and in terms of, you know, what it meant in in practical terms, um, uh, when it comes to the sort of perception of women, um, I, I'm going to read another quote. Um, no apologies here. I think I'm going to quote quite heavily on this bit because I think there's some really, really good quotes that get to the heart of this stuff. Um, so a, a different book that Prochaska wrote called Women at uh, Philanthropy in 19th Century England. He he sort of addresses the specific issue of public speaking as an example of how perceptions of women changed. So he says... In the early 19th century, it was virtually unheard of for a woman to make a public speech. Things had changed dramatically by the early 20th century. A woman no longer handed over her manuscript to be read aloud by a man. She no longer blushed at the prospect of mounting a platform. When suffragettes chained chained themselves to the railings outside the Houses of Parliament, public speaking did not seem such an affront to humanity. Such changes had come about only gradually – touched off by women determined to get their message across and willing to test convention by addressing charity meetings, social science congresses and trade union gatherings. By such actions, they broke down the prejudice against women speakers and made it easier for the less forthright to express themselves in public without fear of obloquy. By enlarging the scope of women's activities, they also modified the way in which people interpreted the possibilities inherent in the female character. So I think that that really clearly sort of outlines the way in which engagement in philanthropy had benefits for for women not so much in terms of the direct cause that was being um being kind of pursued but more in terms of the process of doing it I think you know we've talked before on the podcast about that those two different dimensions of philanthropy the the sort of process of doing it and what that might offer for for the donor um, and also the kind of direct impact of the gift and this is a case in which I think uh, the the value of it um, not all of the value but a large part of the value came in in the process and what it meant for the women engaging in it. Um, I think it's also really interesting to ask a question about why women uh, engaged in philanthropy um, because they didn't enter into it wanting uh, to kind of uh, increase their role in society necessarily um that was just a sort of the the unexpected uh, end result of it i mean one motivation i think that's been identified a lot was sort of boredom really um you know they they didn't really have a, a lot to do and particularly you know middle class or upper class women who lived in houses that were basically kind of run by servants would just be left with very little to do and sort of sitting around idle uh, and they were both bored and also um miserable to an extent, because I think that sense of not having any power and often particularly if they were sort of intelligent women, the idea that they were denied the ability to do anything with that intelligence in the public sphere was deeply frustrating to them um and so the you know philanthropy gave them an outlet not only to sort of alleviate boredom but to sort of uh to work with people whose situation was clearly much worse than their own um and to some extent that might have been slightly kind of um you know sort of self-indulgent i think there was an element of kind of you know poverty tourism or kind of misery tourism in there so on that it's really interesting um there's there's a quote from a woman called Josephine Butler, who was a sort of female philanthropist in, in Liverpool um, in the Victorian era. And I just want to read a quick quote from her, from her sort of memoirs. She said, I became possessed with an irresistible desire to go forth and find some pain keener than my own, to meet with people more unhappy than myself. I had no clear idea beyond that no plan for helping others my sole wish was to plunge into the heart of some human misery and to say as i now knew i could to afflicted people i understand i too have suffered so you see that's very you know she's very clear there that her motivation was was a sort of self-interested one about wanting to sort of make herself feel better by hanging around with people whose lives were much worse than her own Um, And uh, in uh, Margaret Symey, who's a historian, who's written a really great um, book uh, about the the history of um, sort of Victorian philanthropy in in Liverpool, says about um, Butler something interesting. So she says, the individual glory of Josephine Butler's life was her own, but the pattern of it was to become increasingly common. More and more women were to find, as she had done that the path to their own emancipation lay in the service of others who were even more depressed and downtrodden than they were themselves. This capacity to relate their concern for others to their own experience and difficulties was to prove a powerful force in years to come, though at the time its potentialities were not realised. So you see, that's yeah, again sort of outlines that fact that the motivation might have been slightly self-interested, but the end result was a kind of broader sense in which women were able to engage in the public sphere. And then the final thing I want to touch on um, in this section is, is sort of interesting thing from history that um, we'll also see, I think, remains a relevant question today about whether when women engage in philanthropy, they bring a particular approach to it or a sort of, you know, a set of, of values or kind of ways of doing things. So is there such a thing as feminine philanthropy? Um, and I would sort of touched on it earlier, I think, when I was talking about um, uh, Angela Badette coutts But, you know, one of the ways in which it was perceived uh, as there being a fundamental difference between men's philanthropy and women's philanthropy in the Victorian era was that um, women were seen as kind of very much, it was a head versus heart thing, essentially. Women were seen as operating sort of purely from the heart end of things, and it was very much about individual connection and empathy um, and, you know, uh, a sort of projection of their own uh, beliefs and desires about family and morality, whereas men were seen to be more rational and to kind of want to achieve outcomes and to have more skills with sort of governance and management. Um, And again, we talked in the episode about rationality, about this sort of tension between head and heart. Um, And again, I think Josephine Butler, who we've just mentioned before, had something very interesting to say uh, about this this difference between uh, men and uh, women as she perceived it and the way in which you might kind of find a middle ground. So she said, uh, We have had experience of what we may call the feminine form of philanthropy, an independent individual ministering of too medieval a type to suit the present day. It has failed. We are now about to try the masculine form of philanthropy, large and comprehensive measures, organisations and systems planned by men and sanctioned by Parliament. This will also fail if it so far prevail as to extinguish the truth to which the other method w- witnessed in spite of its excesses. Why should we not at last try a union of principles which are equally true? So I think that's a, a, a fascinating quote and one that I think has quite a lot of you know uh, relevance today, not so much in terms of the idea that these are masculine or feminine approaches, but that this kind of You know, the the starting point uh, for philanthropy in terms of uh, heart uh, and kind of personal connection and empathy uh, and the starting point in terms of sort of rationality and outcomes, actually, you know, neither of them in isolation uh, really works and you need to sort of work out the, the balance in the middle. Um, Okay, so in this section, we've sort of talked about uh, women in philanthropy. Um, You know, we haven't really talked about the issues they're addressing. I mean, actually, you know, I've mentioned to some extent that the sphere of issues that they were concerned with were ones that were sort of deemed to be appropriate, um, you know, coming from that domestic sphere. So, you know women were seen as the the guardians of morality and family values so they tended to end up focusing on things like education children or, or poverty um you know in quite a sort of moralistic sense um but in the next section what i want to to look at is the way in which philanthropy has been used as a tool specifically to address uh women's causes so stay tuned for that Okay, so we're back for part two. And in this section, and as I said before the break, I want to think about sort of philanthropy and women's causes. So the first thing I want to say is that women's issues have been a focus of philanthropy for a very long time but but again sort of if you think about the the role of women in terms of their freedom to operate in the public sphere and their access to financial resources for a long time you know those were not things that they had so actually for a long time what we were talking about was men doing philanthropy uh and sometimes aimed at what were women's causes but one gets the impression they weren't really engaging very much with the the women themselves about what those causes were so actually you know if you look at the the sort of pre-victorian history and you know still probably in the victorian era history of um philanthropic focus on women it tends to be very much about um you know sort of women women's bodies and their reproductive systems and i think sort of betrays a quite an unhealthy male uh interest in that and often you know it's it's deeply moralistic um it's paternalistic it's often pretty misogynistic so you know it's things like um dealing with fallen women um or uh, prostitutes uh on the streets of london by men who are probably genuinely motivated by altruism but are you know seeing themselves as somehow the the saviors of women uh, despite themselves, um, you know probably often with a reasonably healthy dose of kind of uh, garden of Eden Christian morality about women, uh, you know being the uh, the originators of of sin and that kind of thing. Um, so I think you know for for a long time that that was probably what philanthropy focused on women's causes was, and it's only really once women themselves. Uh, had the wherewithal to become engaged in philanthropy, that that started to shift. Um, And we've sort of talked in the previous section about, um, you know, when that happens, some individual examples, and also the kind of broader flowering of of female philanthropy in the Victorian era. What I wanted to talk about here is kind of how that went one step further beyond women engaging philanthropy uh, as a tool to sort of um, address uh, other causes, and started then to think more about whether that same philanthropy could be used as a tool to address the the kind of underlying uh, issues that have prevented them from uh, engaging the public sphere. And this is where you start to to talk about you know the suffrage movement and, and women demanding the right for the vote, um, and the role of uh, philanthropy when it comes to suffrage is is quite complex, really and um, it's not as simple as oh well all of these women who had become engaged in philanthropy uh, addressing other causes decided to turn around and take all that money and support suffrage some of them did so that you know there were uh women who directly supported um the suffrage movement um that's true to some extent in the UK it's certainly true in the US there were some quite high profile a uh, big-name big female philanthropist who supported suffrage over there. But the interesting thing is that um, it wasn't as clear-cut as that because there were just as many women who were actually s- sort of against suffrage. There was even a, a women's anti-suffrage movement. Um, and you may, you know, with it, it, with the, ben- the sort of benefit of historical hindsight, when people are on the wrong side of history in that way, it's sometimes difficult to understand why. But actually, philanthropy was was quite a sort of um, determinant factor in a negative way here. So the argument put forward by prominent female anti-suffragists, people like um, the novelist Mary Augusta Ward, uh, and actually Octavia Hill, who was, um, you know, we've talked about it before, uh, housing reformer and, and one of the founders of the National Trust. Their argument was not that they didn't want women to have any rights or power, but they felt that... It was better to focus on things like philanthropy that were actually more suited to women and their kind of natural talents and abilities and to focus on giving them more scope and power in those domains rather than trying to get them into uh, the, the domain of politics through giving them the right to vote. Because actually... They sort of worried that that would be damaging to women. Um, And and to some extent, you know, their their argument was well-meaning. I think they thought not that uh, there was anything that women were inferior or should uh, not be given the vote because they couldn't be trusted with it, but they thought that actually by giving the vote, women would end up with less power in society um, than they might otherwise have. So, you know, as I say, they ended up on the wrong side of history, but it's kind of interesting to see the way in which philanthropy played a role there in in kind of leading people to to be on on a different side of that argument than you might suspect um and then i just want to to develop that you know further on into the future obviously um women did win the right to vote in in many countries um But, you know, that certainly wasn't the end of things, uh, as we'll come on to in the next section, talking about modern women's philanthropy. But there was, you know, a kind of new wave of focus on women's uh, rights in the sort of 60s and 70s, um, you know, the idea of feminism, women's liberation. Um, And that's, you know, that's an interesting one for for philanthropy as well, um, because, again, the... You know, there were some uh, female philanthropists and funders that got involved there. There were also some sort of new philanthropic organisations that, that came out of it. A small number, but some notable ones like the Ms Foundation that was linked to Ms Magazine, which was sort of a big magazine of the, the feminist movement. And also existing funders like the Ford Foundation, you know, t- trying to get on board there. Um, I guess the, the really interesting question uh, for me in that is is kind of how traditional um, uh, philanthropy engages with an issue like uh, feminism of the the kind that we saw in the 60s and 70s when actually what that movement is about is addressing kind of deep underlying structural inequalities and, and problems in society. And, you know, there's a lot of debate at the moment about the extent to which philanthropy is ever a very good tool For addressing those kinds of issues because it's to to some extent a sort of a product of them Uh, and even when you know philanthropy takes that into account and tries to be well-meaning can it ever really kind of overcome the fact that it might reflect the the sort of uh, inequalities and biases of the society in in which the wealth has been created and you know that's been talked about quite a lot in the context of wealth inequality but i think it applies just as much to gender inequality um and actually, I'll you know I'd, I'd like to relate this to to another issue because there's been a a really interesting paper out um, just in the last week or so that's been getting a lot of attention um, by Megan Ming Francis, and she's done a, a really amazing analysis of. The interaction between the Garland Foundation and the NAACP, so the um, sort of representative body for um, African American people, and um, at the in the sort of early part of the the 20th century, prior to the Brown versus Board of Education decision, um, and the Garland Fund was an amazingly um, kind of forward-thinking and you know liberal and progressive organization. But over time, what Francis details is the way in which sort of a shift in their grant making strategy seems to have had a very determinate impact on the NAACP in terms of shifting its focus away from anti lynching, which is what it focused on in the early 20th century to sort of broader um, African-American education programs. Now, that's obviously in a different sphere, but I think the same issues, um, you know, hold true for women's movements, um, particularly because in the sort of women's liberation um, movement, there was quite a a big focus on, you know, the idea of doing things um, without traditional hierarchies and structures. Um, And I think, you know, this to some extent made them, Susceptible um, to you know, what Francis calls "movement capture" when when big funders come in, um, and um, I'll flag up as well. I um, I'll put some things in the show notes. But I did a, a paper a article for Histville recently, just sort of thinking about um, what the you know kind of lessons we might take from uh, some of the issues that the feminist movement uh, faced in in sort of early seventies um might have relevant sort of modern uh, network movements today which is something i'll probably touch on in a future episode of, of the podcast in more detail but i think it's just sort of interesting to throw in now okay well we're definitely in danger of going long on this one so i'm going to wrap up that section there uh, in the final section i just want to go on to talk a bit about modern women's philanthropy and the sort of the role of women in philanthropy today so stay tuned for that <music> Okay, so we're back for the final section. Uh, and as I said, in this section, I just want to talk a bit about the role of uh, women in philanthropy today. Uh, and I'm going to try and keep it reasonably brief and punchy, just because, again, um, you know, even though it's just me in a room on my own, uh, sitting down and talking into a microphone, it turns out that I uh, am quite garrulous. So these things tend to go long. Anyway, right. So um, the first thing I want to talk about is, um, you know, we've talked about women as philanthropists in history. Well, obviously women are philanthropists themselves and uh, today and uh, more and more of them are doing that in their own right because there are more opportunities i think for uh, women to to kind of create wealth of their own although you know clearly still there is nowhere near parity um, when it comes to that um, but, you know, in terms of high profile women who have made a lot of money and then turned to philanthropy, I mean, you think of names like J.K. Rowling, um, Ellen MacArthur, who, as a famous sportswoman here in the, the UK, who's sailed around the world, um, Sigurd Rousing, I think it was one of the. Um, uh the heirs of the Tetra Pak fortune, but then uh has kind of become you know rich in her own right and is a very big environmental philanthropist. Uh Dame Steve Shirley, Stephanie Shirley, who was um, you know, sort of doyen of the tech industry in the UK um and has been a you know very big proponent of philanthropy over you know for a long a long period now. Um so there are plenty of women who uh sort of made you know their own way in the world and made their own money and then turned to philanthropy. Um, but I think it's also you know important to highlight as I say you know there are still the the opportunities for that are uh, perhaps you know well certainly more limited than they should be and there is not gender parity so actually um, you know a lot of the high profile women in the world of philanthropy are still um, a lot of them are doing it sort of in partnership with husbands who might be the prime wealth creators and there's a lot of examples of that, that one can think of. So um, there's obviously Bill and Melinda Gates, uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla Chan, uh, Dustin Moskowitz and Carrie Tuna. So Moskowitz is one of the other early Facebook uh, founders um Laura and John Arnold um Stephen Connie Ballmer so I think it was the Steve Ballmer was the Microsoft guy and Pierre and Pam uh, Amidiar so in all of those cases you know I don't want to suggest that the 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 women in those relationships are somehow sort of lesser and actually I suspect you know in a lot of cases they take uh, something of a lead when it comes to the philanthropic side of things Um, but it's you know sort of in terms of that that question of the extent to which it is genuine women's philanthropy or whether you know how much influence they have over the way in which that money is distributed you know i I don't know what that that sort of uh, continued reliance on uh, on the wealth coming uh, via marriage means you know one one uh, example that's worth flagging up of of the ways in this, which this could be problematic, which is quite interesting, and I, I want to be careful here not to sort of go into you know personal details of people's lives because that's not really what I want to do, but I just want to to flag up the case of Chris Hone and Jamie Cooper Hone, it was you know reported in lots of the papers, so. Chris Hone was a hedge fund manager who set up the Children's Investment Fund and you know made an, an enormous amount of money through it and part of the model was that a percentage of the the money generated through the fund would be paid into a foundation the Children's Investment Fund Foundation every year I think um and that foundation would be um managed by his wife Jamie Cooper um who was you know in a, in her own right a sort of um very successful nonprofit executive um and it you know became a sort of big player in in the foundation world. Um but then uh the Hones um divorced fairly acrimoniously in, in two thousand and fourteen and actually the the foundation became a sort of centerpiece of the divorced settlement because you know, Jamie Cooper Hone I think and her lawyers were making the case that actually um, there needed to be a continued commitment to to uh, the original sort of deal that, that had been struck for for the money generated through the fund through the hedge fund to fund the the philanthropic work and and actually um, you know a judge agreed with them and ordered I think in 2017 um, the Children's Investment Fund the, the hedge fund to pay about 280 million to uh, not to the Children's Investment Fund Foundation but to Jamie Cooper, Hone, uh, Jamie Cooper Hone's, um new venture which is called Big Bet Philanthropy I think um, uh, which is sort of you know interesting that the judge took that view that actually um, you know uh, whilst it was Chris Hone who had made the money um, through his hedge fund to some extent actually the judge agreed that you know Jamie Cooper Hone had perhaps sort of sacrificed um you know uh things in her own career in order to be part of that and that this was you know there was a definite deal that had been struck between uh the spouses at the time and that needed to be reflected in the divorce settlement i mean the, the latest i know on that story actually is that the court of appeal overturned that decision as far as i understand last year so i don't know where it stands now but i don't know whether that money is now being paid through um but you know it's it's kind of obviously these things are always extremely thorny but it's sort of interesting the way in which it has brought the question of husband and wife ph- uh, philanthropy dynamics um into the spotlight there um the you know beyond the sort of women uh, as philanthropists themselves Another thing that I think is interesting is going back to that idea of whether when women do philanthropy, they do it in a sort of specifically uh, feminine way, which, you know, in the Victorian era we saw was to do with um, trying to draw a distinction between sort of rational approaches to philanthropy and kind of emotive um, empathetic uh, approaches to philanthropy i don't know that anybody would suggest that nowadays or they'd probably have you know get um, roundly sort of shouted down if they did but but i think there is you know evidence uh, about the the ways in which women's approach when they come to philanthropy is determinedly different and there are people sort of doing um, research on this one of them i think is that they tend to take a more collaborative approach to philanthropy um you know perhaps I and mean, perhaps that reflects sort of less ego on their part or or something else I, I don't know but there's certainly a kind of strong link between women in philanthropy and things like giving circles where a number of donors come together to sort of pool their resources and decision making about philanthropy um and uh to to kind of use that as a way of making it perhaps more collegiate and and more democratic um so you know there might well be other ways in which women's um kind of approach to philanthropy is different and it's gonna be interesting to see if that can be drawn out uh, with more evidence from research um and then the final thing i just want to talk about is you know the way in which philanthropy addresses women's causes so you know, we kind of talked a bit about the way in which there was an evolution from uh, philanthropy as a tool to address causes that were seen as part of the domestic sphere to uh, an evolution uh, towards focusing on on the emancipation of women themselves and then latterly uh, kind of women's uh, further rights. Um, And, you know, unfortunately, we are not at the position as a society where those problems have been solved and we can well, we'll happily get on with our lives so there is you know there's still a great need to focus on women's issues when it comes to philanthropy um you know some of that some of that has been given focus um as a result of the sustainable development goals the sdgs so um sdg 5 i believe is around gender uh, equality so and that's become kind of i think quite a good way for people to frame approaches to that but you know that that encompasses i think all sorts of um Issues just around the 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 freedoms that women uh currently don't enjoy in many countries around the world, but also issues like you know domestic and sexual violence, the use of you know rape as a as a weapon of war, female genital mutilation all these kinds of issues that are that are bound up and are really big problems in in many parts of the world and you know need to be seen as specific focuses of philanthropy that all fit within a kind of broader theme of of women's um issues or gender equality um the the other one i think which is sort of perhaps you know less about um the the global south in a way which you know the sdgs it's not it's not directly about that because it it, uh, it applies to all countries but there's sort of there's still a sense in which it is about kind of aid going in in that direction even though people are trying to sort of redress that balance and shift power as well as as money um is is um things like the me too movement so um again this is the kind of the newest instantiation i think of um women's rights uh, or kind of you know feminist movement which is um i mean partly framed as a backlash i think against you know the the sense that people nonsensical people and i will say that saying things like oh actually it's men who've become the oppressed minority and all this kind of rubbish which is definitely not true and i think things like the me too movement and to some extent the women's march um in in the u.s as well which was formed as a as a reaction to trump being elected um and you know all of his kind of pretty uh, appalling gender politics Um, So, you know, the the Me Too movement has sort of exemplified the way in which uh, social action and kind of social movements by and for women aimed at kind of, you know, not even just at this point kind of... uh, ensuring equality for them in, in society but just sort of addressing the the kind of active inequalities that they face in the workplace um and in terms of the sorts of behaviors that they are subjected to and that are, that are seen as normal um and i think you know there'll be a really interesting question there for what role philanthropy plays um you know to to some extent the philanthropy of giving time uh, and and skills is an obvious part of that because you know women themselves are part of uh of that me too movement and contributing um time and effort to it i think again you know looking back to um our you know the discussion we had about um the challenges that funders might have uh, faced engaging with things like the women's liberation movement and sort of structureless movements Um, in the previous section i think there's an interesting question there about how funders and philanthropists engage with something like the me too movement or sort of broader um, loose non-hierarchical social movements of that kind aimed at aimed at sort of furthering the rights of women Um, because again the danger is always that even if they have good intentions, when they come in with large amounts of money, they inadvertently shift the emphasis or kind of crush the thing uh, that they that they wanted to support in the first place. So, so you know, I think that that is going to be an, an interesting dynamic over the next few years. And then I guess the final thing to say about this is, you know we're We're talking about uh you know women's ability to engage in philanthropy as philanthropists, and maybe that's a reflection of increased gender um equality to some extent but and more needs to be done, so you know philanthropy is a tool for uh for kind of furthering gender inequality, hopefully, but actually we need to have a look within the world of philanthropy and charity uh to kind of get our own house in order i think before necessarily going out and assuming it can be used as a tool to further gender equality more widely and ask questions about whether the world of philanthropy uh, and sort of institutional philanthropy and charity has, um, you know, full gender equality and diversity. And, and I think, you know, unfortunately, the reality is that it doesn't at the moment. I mean, um, certainly some figures that that I was looking at when uh, doing research for, for this episode um, suggested in the UK, for instance, looking at the top 100 charities um, whilst i think you know the charity sector does better than many other sectors in terms of the number of women in senior leadership roles still only i think 27 percent of ceos chairs and cfos taken as a group were women uh in those top 100 charities and that you know that is just you know uh objectively not representative of society as a whole and that's problematic i think m- probably even more so for uh the charity sector given that you know many of those organizations are either there to specifically promote um the idea of women's equality or are kind of there more broadly to promote ideas of equality and social justice. So if they're they're not reflecting that sort of within uh within their own uh organizations, then, you know, that is potentially problematic in terms of their wider legitimacy. Um okay, so I think I will draw things to a close there. Um but I think, you know, it just you know, remains to be said, I think it's really interesting to think about the way in which philanthropy has interacted with the sort of status of women in society and, you know, the desire to ensure that women are have equality and are able to play that full role. Because it's, you know, it's sometimes been uh, a hugely positive thing and certainly the sort of involvement of women in philanthropy historically was a big way of of opening the door to that public sphere that had been closed to them for so long. And, you know, it has played a role as a tool for furthering uh, that equality and freedom even further. It's, you know, but it's sometimes been, uh, you know, a kind of negative force in some ways. And we saw that with the, you know, the role that philanthropy's played in, in the women's anti-suffrage movement. Um, and again, you know, the challenges that um, you might find when funders try to engage with these sort of looser, non-hierarchical movements around women's issues uh, and the the challenges that they will kind of, inadvertently undermine those because they they perhaps reflect um too closely the structures of the society um in which they have been formed um, so i think you know it's it's a challenge but um there's definitely uh you know a lot of encouraging signs of the uh recognition of a sort of specific um a specific kind of type of philanthropy that is both by and for women uh and could be a kind of hugely potentially um powerful force in the future so you know i'll keep my fingers crossed on that one okay so uh, i will shut up now because you've definitely had more than enough of me talking for one day uh it just remains to say that um if you have enjoyed the uh stuff I'm talking about today i'll put a load of links in the show notes to relevant stuff um, if you are more broadly interested in uh, stuff on kind of philanthropy and civil society, um, check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis. Uh, and if you've got any ideas for people that we could interview on the podcast or other themes that I could talk about, um, drop me a line at givingthought at CAFonline.org. Uh, Other than that, it just remains to say, uh, like this, uh, subscribe, give us a nice review on iTunes and that kind of thing. And other than that, I will see you all next time. Bye!